This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is a Tuesday, the 21st. Aha! It's summer! Oh my god, it's the first day of summer! <sighs> Last weekend was Father's Day. I tried to listen to the mailstream media, the radio and the TV. I wanted to catch the drift, see if anything has changed, you know? Okay, every day is Father's Day, that's for sure. <laughs> the old cliches, you know. Uh, aha. My favorite was a quote I found for Father's Day. Yes, I found this quote. It's comes from the younger, a younger son of Osama bin Laden. You remember Osama, killed by the U.S. military on May the 2nd of this year. Old news. Anyway, father of the year, he was, yes. Father of fear, yes. 9-11, anyway. Omar, the younger son, Omar bin Laden, the son, wrote, uh... My father hated his enemies more than he loved his sons. I like that. Um, it's one of the things I keep saying. Nothing will change until the fathers love their sons more than they hate their enemies. Well, all of us, actually, more than the... Uh, be All the parents have to love children more than they hate enemies. Let's see where I find that bit. Um... Found it in the 16 May issue of the New Yorker magazine, my little Bible. The issue with, um, it's the issue with Ben Laden, Osama, Ben Laden's face on the cover. <laughs> it's almost completely scratched out, kind of an arty uh, cover there. They got his face with the turban, but it's all scratched out. Uh, you know, the way you scratch out lottery tickets, that kind of thing. Uh, Anyway, uh, let me read you just a little paragraph uh, from this bit. Uh, it's by Steve Call, C-O-L-L. Ben Laden, it's titled The Outlaw. Uh, ben Laden had at least four wives and 20 children. His life didn't end in total familial isolation. He died in the company of his youngest wife. A Yemeni woman in her twenties, uh, as well as at least one of his sons. Uh, for many years, he had been estranged from others of his children. <laughs> Deadbeat dad. Okay. Uh, that's not in, in uh, Steve's article. Anyway, uh, the article goes on to say that as far as is known, his eldest son... That's uh, Abdullah. Uh, never saw his father after leaving for Jeddah. Uh, right. Um, interesting. He left for Jeddah when he came of age. He went there and opened an advertising agency. Uh, it The agency has shuttered its website. Its current status is unclear. So we don't know about that. Son, um, <laughs> Osama, Osama Pear, daddy died at the age of 53. Um, 
He had, according to this article, become, quote, a little cranky. Oh, yeah, sounds like a dad. The article insists, or they, he states, Steve Call states, that Osama was not an aesthetic or intellectual innovator. Uh, and, uh, yes, he describes Osama's medieval aims and high-tech means, uh, but he implies, pretty much states, that um, Osama bin Laden is not, was not, in any sense, a father of the Arab Spring. I think that rings true. Um, as I said, uh, the eldest son split early. This article, once again, is titled The Outlaw. Check it out, 16 May, New York, or let me read you one more sentence about this little ending here, uh, where the younger son speaks up. Omar bin Laden, the younger son of Osama, left his father in Afghanistan in 1999 and later co-wrote a memoir with his mother, Najwa. That's spelled N-A-J-W-A. I may have mispronounced it. She uh, is a cousin whom Osama had married when he was 17 and she was 15. <laughs> Yes. Oh, yes. So old-fashioned. Anyway, in the book, writes Steve Call, in this book, the memoir, Omar wrote that he had lost faith in his father as a young adult in war-ravaged Afghanistan. He lost faith when Osama suggested that he and his brothers consider taking up Suicide bombing in the Taliban's cause. The boys demurred. Omar never got over the request. He wrote, quote, My father hated his enemies more than he loved his sons. Well, that's not a very complicated test of love, but I, I think that pretty much sums it up. You ask your kids to be a kamikaze uh, pilot or to blow themselves up. I think you are asking them to do blood sacrifice in the oldest tradition. So it goes. Bloody biblical stuff. Story of Abraham. You remember that one? If God tells you to sacrifice your son, his son too, so be it the time of the Patriarchs was the time of jealous gods. All that psychology is so simplistic. Uh, I kind of see it's simple. Yes, man's ego, super ego, I guess. <clears throat> it's what causes him to believe that his God is the God. In effect, Big Daddy himself. You know, God theology, I think, it's right there in Psychology 101. All of us have a bit of this pathology. I think we all want others to have faith in us. I was reading Sophie Tolstoy last night, wife of uh, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian writer. She's brokenhearted because her husband, Leo Tolstoy, she says, does not believe in her. I think I know what she means, but... 
It's a confusing word, yes. Uh, belief in the other. Of course, when this pathology, this very human quality demands that other people die for us or for our cause, well, it gets pretty murky there, you know. Think of all the big daddies who take their families with them as to the grave. They want the company. Historically, big daddies have taken their servants and their slaves and their wives and children. Anything or anyone who ever served them in their life. Um, Shaka Zulu comes to mind. Today's megalomaniacs often do this metaphorically. Uh, Hmm, think of my own father. Oh, dear, dear, let's not go down that road. Picasso was a great father figure. When he died, uh, see, a grandson tried to kill himself. I think he succeeded, right? He drank poison or something. Uh, his wife uh, uh, and then a- another woman lover, they all joined Picasso in death. Ah, strange, the power of Big Daddy George Bernard Shaw once noted that selfishness, human selfishness, is not doing your own thing. Selfishness is demanding that others do your thing. The artist, for example, is allowed to develop his talents, you know, any way he can. Uh, Sometimes this is done at the expense of others. Uh, I remember as a young woman saying, no, I can't come to Aunt Julie's party or I can't do this or that uh, little thing, some family responsibility because I'm too important. I have to go to rehearse for my play, blah, blah, blah. I was told what a selfish girl I was. No, I, I think I knew what was mine and what belonged to others. Uh, I think, what is that? Something else Shaw said just came to me. He said, uh, he said, if you sacrifice yourself to others, they will end up disliking you or even hating you for it. That's true. I remember that. That's a mom thing, you know. I've noticed many young people, they can't stand it. They see that masochism in their moms and they say, go get yourself a life. You know, don't, don't. Anyway, all of that is just pop psych. We have to figure it out for ourselves. Last Sunday night, uh, it was Monday morning. I thought, oh, well, good, Father's Day is over. No more of that nonsense. Then I watched a movie. I watched a French film about Coco Chanel and Igor Stravinsky. Yep, (laughs) sure, yes, it was still Father's Day. Every day is Father's Day because it's their world. God love them, yes. Ah, they're all darling boys, darling boys. Some shrinks say that uh, women, the mothers, are always the parents, and guys, you know, are always the children. That's one of the theories. Uh, That movie... Is gorgeous, um, Coco Chanel and Igor Stravinsky. I think the title is Chanel and Stravinsky. It's a French picture, right? Uh, I couldn't stop watching it, but it's a bit of a, 
oh, it's kind of dull. I mean, it's long-suffering movie. Uh, just long, long looks at these beautiful rooms. Talk about an aesthetic. Uh, Igor Stravinsky's four children, I believe there were four, at least in the movie, they look on while Stravinsky has this muted uh, affair with Coco Chanel. Uh, Chanel offered... Stravinsky and his wife and children a place to live in the country at her uh, she said it's not a palace but I looked like one to me anyway I I was hooked by the opening scenes uh, they showed us a 1913 production of Stravinsky's Rites of Spring I have no idea how historically accurate it was but uh, the Paris audience was absolutely awesome uh the the fans i think were so so lovely anyway the audience goes nuts when they hear igor stravinsky's uh barbaric music uh the avant-garde starts roaring calling out that they're snobs and um other various things that i can't say on the air the conventional folks some of those walk out of the performance and then the fans uh demand that the thing go on after the uh the break in the acts i i wish i knew how much of that was accurate it looked like they were trying to be very very accurate uh stravinsky is shown after the performance he blames the dancers or something and um i think it was nijinsky saying that the dancers were perfectly on beat no maybe it was the uh the uh uh the guy the orchestra i i think the um the thing is, I stuck it out because I was dying to see uh, an actor por- portray Nijinsky, the famous dancer, and they didn't get around to that. Uh, but Diaghilev was there, the great impresario. We see the police arrive and all that good stuff. Uh, I wanted to see the performance that takes place in 1920. I had to wait all the way to the end of the film uh, to see this one come off. By that time... Rites of Spring had been recognized as a masterpiece. Obviously, World War One woke everybody up. Isn't that a trip? Uh, 1913 before the war, 1920 after the war. Uh, in 1913, we see Coco Chanel uh, in a corset. She has this lover. He's just called Boy. They... they uh, just give a glimpse, apparently the great love of her life, uh, of their affair there. She doesn't want to wear the corsets, one of the things that made her famous. Uh, she got rid of that stuff, but the uh, great love dies in a car accident, so she has to make do with guys like Igor Stravinsky. Uh, anyway, the movie's all about a tale of neurosis, and what I started noticing was that the children were <laughs> just kind of an afterthought obviously if you're staying in the country with uh, uh, your wife and four children uh, there would be a lot more going on than just an affair with your landlady uh, well his benefactress uh, his neurosis and her neurosis are very well matched uh it's a power driven thing you know she's a new woman she's exhausted from overwork she's a rather cruel task mistress 
her independence demands that she, of course, reject motherhood and all that nonsense. But uh, her financial success uh, uh, allows her to pay for the 1920 production. She just gives Diaghilev a check and says, don't tell anybody. Uh, anyway, uh, Stravinsky tells her at one point that he is the artist and she's just a shopkeeper. Okay, that's about the time she, uh, but she, she, she rejects him sexually. She says she won't be his mistress, but she does become his anonymous benefactor. That's a way of winning, yes. What is it women hope to win? Um, anyway, there was some very weird stuff at the end of the film. It looked like the editors couldn't decide how to end the damn thing. Uh, they show both of them, Stravinsky and Chanel, as very, very old, looking very hideous, but still playing their parts. I thought that was unnecessarily cruel. I found the Russian wife, Katya, the most intriguing. I think it's because I've been reading Sophie Tolstoy, kind of her contemporary, Katya's contemporary. Russian women and all that soul in the early 20th century. Uh, she seems to be suffering from tuberculosis or weak lungs. Uh, finally, she takes the children and departs. She and Stravinsky have been, uh, what, I guess, living on Coco Chanel's goodwill. Uh, so she tries to be polite, but at one point she finally says, don't you feel guilty? And... Uh, uh, Coco Chanel, they're alone together. She, and uh, Coco says, no. Anyway, Katya spends most of her time in bed working on Stravinsky's compositions. Yes, just like Leo Tolstoy's wife, Sophia. She does all the typing and then she she says, uh, uh, don't you think, she's working on war and peace, and she says, don't you think Natasha would have done this, that, or the other, right? Now I'm thinking of a movie uh, about Sophia and Leo Tolstoy. Uh, what was the title? The, uh, the Last Station. That's it. The Last Station refers to the, the place um, Tolstoy was running away from his wife. And he, he died in a, a house near a train station. The Last Station. Uh, uh, his wife bore him 13 children. Uh, I think um, eight survived. Helen Mirren was in that movie. Christopher Plummer played Tolstoy. I think that Helen Mirren's Sophie Tolstoy, Tolstoy, is a monumental role for her. She is a real muse, a uh, kittenish in her old age. It seemed to me that both these women are archetypes, that is, mothers of their husbands. They want to be mistresses and lovers to their husbands. Both are hungry for the passion of their early romantic days. I always wonder in these situations, who's the father of us all? Think of the sort of women who struggle. Think how it is when women try to be the sub, the main, the m main song, the major artist in the family. Uh, it's impossible while still mothering, I think of, well, George Sand, 
kind of managed it. Chopin and her children were all kind of, what is that, uh, her, uh, <laughs> her children. Chopin was consumptive, sick so much of the time. Uh, I think the most successful would be George Eliot, but oh no, no, she had no children. Okay. Uh, today's pop psychology is probably more or less right on target. Uh, sometimes I, I like to, to put it up on the level of, well, think of Hillary and Bill Clinton. Yes, Hillary Rodham and Bill Clinton. I remember at one point Hillary tried to keep her birth name, you know, call herself Hillary Rodham. Republicans kept saying it was Sodom, yes, Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh-huh. Rodham and Gomorrah. Anyway, as a political wife in Arkansas, she realized that uh, that just wouldn't work. She had to do the conventional thing, but some folks say that maybe she has laid claim to their name. Maybe Clinton will get as much, um, get as much historical representation. Yes, Hillary Clinton as much. Well, they give her equal time with Bill. That's, I guess, the best she can hope for. Uh, Bill Clinton once said that a counselor they were seeing told him that he was 16 years old and Hillary 40 and that that was a permanent situation. Ah, yes, that theme, I think it's a little, just a little bit presumptive. Uh, Angmar Bergman gets to the heart of the matter in his movie Scenes of a Marriage from a Marriage. I don't know if I can recommend that one. I think at the end of it, I thought, oh boy, he's he's done the ultimate one-upmanship. The two of them are together and... uh, they are, what is it, they're locked in their love-hate relationship. And he, the husband, uh, Ingmar Bergman's representative in the movie, he comforts her because she is more afraid of death than he is. Okay, Ingmar, I guess, <laughs> I guess you can, you can do that. Um, I was thinking once, um, I once asked my my last stepmother, the fourth of my uh, stepmothers, uh, I was young and fairly stupid and naive. I asked her if she didn't want children, and she said, what the hell would I do with your father? I was, I was such a kid, I didn't get it. Uh, for adolescent women, young girls, this mythos of the... The masculine is overpowering. Yes, Heathcliff. I guess this is nature's way of providing us with another generation. I, I guess it's just a question of at what age or stage of life do most women and men recognize the adult male uh, as... You know, just us, just a guy. Uh, I knew my kid brother was just a people, but the father? There's a feminist writer named Phyllis Chesler. She has a book titled About Men. I remember my older son trying to hide it once from his girlfriend. It goes far beyond the gender theories that are fashionable these days. 
a lot of subtexts. Phyllis Chesler grapples with biology, art, poetry, theology, her own autobiography. She married an Iranian student here, and she went over there. And she, she had to be rescued by her father-in-law. Finally put her on a plane, sent her back here. <laughs> Husband, he wouldn't let her go to a coffee house. Um, but, of course, he was trapped in his father's uh, patriarchal, what is that, play scene. Uh, there's a wonderful passage about Phyllis Chesler's ambiguity about her own father that just cuts to the bone. Let's see if I have time to read it. No, I don't. It's very long, and I think I'll save it for another day because it's just a little bit. It's a little bit heartbreaking, and uh, it's really more about about her being uh, becoming a lesbian. Uh, I think what I'll do is I'll use some of the pieces, some of the little quips from Phyllis Chester's book about men in which she talks about this great, what is this, this unspeakable subtext. Uh, she writes about the guilt of lamenting sons and blinded fathers is truly insupportable. It burns, it burrows, it explodes like the weapons both men use to rid themselves of each other's flesh. The face of our earth is half eaten away by the syphilis of greed. <clears throat> she goes on to talk about uh, the battle cries of the disinherited sons rising up in ghettos and colonies everywhere. They are starving. They are the rebel barbarians at the gates of the deadly king. Hitler, Nixon, Stalin, grandiose, mediocre, paranoid, humiliated. All these, she says, were classic father-wounded sons. Even more father-wounded than the men who submit to them. In fury, she writes, in hunger, they call for the father's sacrifice. They say... Let us make a new religion, brotherhood. If blood must be shed, this time let it be the fathers, not the sons. Well, now that's a switch, isn't it? Let us send the fathers off to war. Ah. She says, slowly I began to understand... That father-wounded sons never recover, never confess, never remember. Slowly, I began to understand why women can never satisfy the longing of boys who are love-starved for their fathers. Why women can never exorcise the grief of men, lured by their fathers into wanting the impossible. Revenge, reunion, redemption... God Almighty's benevolent protection against other men, against the original female parent, a magic male amulet, a son's shield against the rising hot shame of childhood vulnerability. Oh, and there are pages here <laughs> about 
Zygmunt Freud. Yes, Ziggy Freud. Uh, let's see. I guess I can end with a joke. Only yesterday, writes Phyllis Chesler in her book about men. Only yesterday I asked a male psychiatrist to tell me about the male fear of male violence. He said that wasn't a problem. No, what really frightened him were these gangs of teenage girls who took up the whole sidewalk. No, he said, lighting his pipe. It is women that men fear, most of all. <laughs> this has been Jennifer Stone. I will be back on the air at the same time next year. The great father willing. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadow. This is Rewell and Franklin, technical director for Full Circle. And if you missed your chance to apply for the First Voice Apprenticeship Program here at KPFA, guess what? There's still time. We here at KPFA have extended the deadline to Friday, June 24th at 5 p.m. The mandatory orientation has been rescheduled to Wednesday, June 29th at 7 p.m. You, too, can produce radio. For more information, call 510-848-6767, extension 235, or visit us at kpfaapprentice.org, where you can download your application.